invite you to turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter, and it's only 10 verses. First John chapter 1, listen, this is God's Word. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin." If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Well, we have been spending the last two months looking at a variety of pictures and images God gives us in His Word to describe for us His forgiveness of our sins. Let me remind you, He casts our sins like a rock into the depths of the sea. He disregards our sins, throws it on the ground, and walks all over it. He removes our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. He washes our sin away. He covers our sin in the blood of Christ. He cancels the debt our sin creates. He redeems us or buys us back from the sin to which we were enslaved. And He takes away our guilt. All these and more are ways the Bible describes God's forgiveness. Or if you prefer, these are the ways God Himself gives us, these are His images, to describe for us what He does with our sin. I think in other words, as you've looked at this, if you think about the variety of uh, vocabulary to describe sin, the language of forgiveness is at least as great 
and matches in so many perfectly dovetailed ways. We've noticed along the way how closely connected forgiveness is with that term we sometimes use, justification, which is that once-for-all act of God by which we are declared to be righteous, which is another way of God saying He removes from us our liability of sin. He removes the judgment that is due to us for our sin, and that includes our sins past, present, and future. And we've seen all of this, of course, is because of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, or because, even better, what Jesus Christ has done for us when He came. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life of obedience. He never had sin for which He would need to repent or of which He would need to be forgiven. And yet he goes to the cross and endures the punishment for our sin in our place. The judgment of God due to us resting on him. And his satisfaction of God's justice is confirmed in his resurrection from the dead. Well, along the way, we haven't spent quite as much time as I wanted to on this question. How does this forgiveness of sins become ours? How does this forgiveness of sins in all of its rich variety of ways of being expressed, how does it become ours? And the answer very simply is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and in repenting of our sins. So we can say we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and we receive the forgiveness of sins when God calls us. And He does that through the preaching of His Word. When the Holy Spirit makes us alive, when we were once dead. When, as it were, we come to our senses and realize by God's Spirit at work in us, applying the Word to us, not just that we are sinners, and need a Savior, but that we have sinned against this God who has provided for us a Savior in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we receive the justification, the forgiveness of sins when we put our faith in Jesus, when we repent of our sins, and faith and repentance are themselves gifts of God's grace to us. And it's in that moment when all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and we are changed from having been laboring under a sense of of dread of God's judgment, under the sentence of condemnation, even if we weren't under dread of that for a while. But we're transferred from that into the joyful assurance of God's Spirit at work in us, granting us peace. Peace with God. And the recognition that we are sons and daughters of the Father. We are forgiven. 
And so our Lord Jesus said to his disciples just before his ascension, Luke chapter 24, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so what did the apostles do? This very thing. Just to pick two places, the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 5 said this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then later the Apostle Paul, also in Acts, describes his ministry and his mission in these terms. He had been called to preach the gospel of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Peter and Paul, following Christ, said this is what they are called to do. To proclaim the gospel of repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ, by which we receive the forgiveness of God and peace with Him. Well, this morning I have one, mother, one other question I want to raise and hopefully answer for you, and it's this, because I hear it once in a while. I'm a Christian. I became a Christian when I was five in Sunday school or uh, sitting on my grandmother's lap as she read the Bible to me, or at summer Bible camp, or when I was in high school or at that uh, retreat in freshman year of college. I came under conviction of sin. I repented of my sin. I laid hold of Christ, I now understand that better than I did even in the moment, but I'm a Christian. I believe I'm forgiven. Do I really need to confess my sin again? If my sin is forgiven past, present, and future, do I need to confess it? Or you might be asking if you're paying attention even just a little bit, you might say, well, why is it that every Sunday when we gather, we have a section of our service where we read God's law, His imperatives, we pray a prayer of confession, and then in Jesus' name, I pronounce on you the forgiveness of sins as we hear God's Word telling us you are forgiven. And then we sing a song, a song of response, a song of joy, a song to thank God for the forgiveness. Why do we do that every Sunday? And we have to, we have to do something like that every day. And the short answer is this. The same gospel that brought you to faith for the first time in Jesus Christ, that convicted you of your sin and made you respond with repentance and to lay hold of the mercy of God in Christ, the same gospel that drove you to do that the first time, that same gospel you need and live by every day. In other words, I think most of you would accept this. We need to live by faith in Jesus every day. And, and yet the word is always linking these two together. That is, our faith is always a repentant faith, and our repentance is always a faith-driven repentance. That is, we repent looking to God's mercy in Jesus. A very short way to say this is the gospel is for Christians too. 
And so here we enter into the world of faith and life we call sanctification. And you can think of sanctification as what takes place in you between those two points in your life. The first point being the moment of conversion. When you are set apart by God in Christ and declared to be holy, your sins forgiven. And the second point yet to come is when Jesus returns, when you will be openly acquitted, put back together, made whole and complete, body and spirit, and made perfect in holiness, fit for His presence forever and ever as renewed people. From the time you were converted until the time that happens, what's happening in you by the work of the Spirit of Christ in you, applying the Word of God to you, is what we call sanctification. And that is when we are by the Spirit's work in our lives, applying the standard of God's Word to our hearts, expressed in the ways we think and speak and act, We are being renewed in our inner being to become increasingly like Jesus. We are already holy and at the same time called to be holy. And a significant part of our life as Christians in this season of sanctification is our reckoning with ongoing sin. I promise this is going to be a sermon that has something to do with forgiveness. We're getting there. But you see, it's because we are united to Christ, because of what God has done for us in making us holy, justifying us, declaring us to be righteous, and because the Spirit of Christ lives in us, uniting us to the Holy One in heaven, and because our hearts and our minds are being renewed and made receptive and freshly receptive to the voice of God speaking in the Word of God, the Bible, we become increasingly aware of our sin. We become aware of new kinds of sin that maybe we've been sinning for a long time but haven't realized that they don't match up to that part of God's Word. We resolve by God's grace to put that sin to death or to put on new clothes of righteous conduct. We resolve to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. In short, we want to become more like Jesus. So we continue all of our lives putting our faith and trust in Christ and confessing our sin to God so that we might enjoy the daily renewing of our hearts and our lives, that we might experience the joy of forgiveness and that we might live in the joy of the fellowship with God, as John calls it here, which is also fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we get to do this until Jesus comes again experiencing the joy of the forgiveness of sins on on our repentance of them, of our laying them before God, confessing them. And I know this is two weeks late, and I'm thankful I didn't get any 
angry letters about not noticing Reformation Day, but here's a quotation for you from Martin Luther, who nailed his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, popularly seen as a start of the Protestant Reformation. The very first of those 95 theses is this, and I quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this overly long introduction gets us right into 1 John chapter 1, and I want to urge you today to a life of regular repentance and daily faith so that you will live in the joy of the fellowship of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you today to live a life of regular repentance and daily faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that you might know the joy of fellowship with our God and Father and with His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, I think we need to, from 1 John 1, we need to understand three things better. We need to understand and love God better. We need to know something of our ourselves better and something of sin better. So first, what do we know or what should we know about God? Verse 5, John writes, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. John is bringing to mind at least two qualities or characteristics of God. The first, I think, is light as revelation. God who spoke light into the world as His first act of creation. God who speaks to us and, and lets us know who He is and what He's about and what He's doing for us. But John's also highlighting, I think, amplifying God's holiness. To say that God is light, especially in this context, is to amplify His holiness, His transcendence, His glory, His majesty, His utter sinlessness his perfection, and his purity. And John's doing that because he's wanting to contrast that holiness with with our sin. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15, God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. All this to say, when we say God is light, when John says God is light, he's letting us know God cannot abide sin. He cannot tolerate it, cannot look on it with approval, to say the least. We hold that together with God who is light, who graciously reveals himself. He's the light who enables us to see. And so we see Him in His glory and His holiness and His splendor as the one who is in every way perfect and sinless and holy and the one who also, by virtue of that holiness, is a God of justice, a God who will deal with sin. 
and who also tells us the very same time he's a God who's compassionate, who's merciful, who's gracious, who actually, as we hear it in the terms of 1 John 1, who desires fellowship with us. He wants us to be with him. And he reveals himself to us as the one who has sent his son into the world as his light. As Simeon says of the baby Jesus, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Or the same John in his gospel saying, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So God is light. He is resplendent in glory and majesty, untouched by sin, clothed only in holiness and purity. And at the same time, the God who reveals himself is a God of compassion and a God of mercy, a God whose justice and whose mercy will come together because, among other things, he reveals his Son, who is light, who is coming into the world for the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1 also tells us something about ourselves. It tells us, it reminds us we are simultaneously saints and sinners. We're justified and redeemed, and yet we are sinners. Now, this, to say we are sinners, is something we would all agree to, I trust. Because it's very easy to say that, isn't it? We all nod, we say, yeah, we know, we're sinners, and we think of that or we say it in the abstract. What's a little harder for us to admit, just as hard as it is for us to say, is of any particular situation, I was wrong. You see, we sin in real and specific and concrete and individualized ways. Which is just to say, while we might share with one or another sin patterns or kinds of sins, we each stand before God sinning our sins. And they are as unique to you as they are to me. My sins are not your sins, your sins are not my sins, and your singular sins are not the same as the sins of the person you're sitting next to. Our sin is real, specific, concrete, and individualized. Which means part of your responsibility today and every day is to discover those in the light of God's Word so that you can confess them in real, specific, concrete, individualized ways. And not only to discover and confess them, but then to lay hold of the mercy of God in Christ, the forgiveness of those sins, forgiveness expressed in real, specific, concrete, individualized ways. You see, by the light of God's Word, By the work of His Spirit, He reveals not only how we are to live as Christians, but also in all the ways we fall short. 
which makes it impossible, as John puts it in verse 6, for anyone to say, I have fellowship with this God, and I'm living in darkness. I'm fellowship with the God of light, and I'm living in sin. That's impossible. Or, in verse 8, to say, we have no sin. Or to say, in verse 10, I've never sinned. In order to say those things, one has to have a distorted view of themselves or of God. God who says we all sin ourselves because we do sin. So we're either deceiving ourselves, which we become very good at doing. We are deceiving others, which we might even be better at doing. And we are making God out to be a liar. Jesus had said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, I've come into the world as light, so that no one who believes in me should walk or stay in darkness. 1 John 1 tells us something about God, the God of light who reveals himself, but is a God of utter holiness. And a God who reveals himself as a God who's compassionate as he is just. First John 1 tells us something about the inability to deny our sinfulness. The inability to stand before God and say, well, I've never sinned before, I don't sin, or I'm walking in fellowship with you even though I am sinning. First John tells us something more, though. It tells us something about, uh, about sin and salvation. There's a bunch of good news in here. God, the God of light, who reveals himself as sending his son, says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You see, God anticipated our problem. God knows our sin. He knows we can't stand before the scrutiny of His light. He knows we cannot expect to be welcomed or to stand in His presence or to have lasting, joyful fellowship with Him, that kind of fellowship He desires for us. We can't have it in our natural condition. It is not even possible in this life to have full and joyful fellowship with the God who is light while we walk in the darkness that is sin. And a life of sin that creates a fundamental gap between God and man that brings disharmony, disunity, that's harmful to us, to our relationships with others, but ultimately robs us of the joy of the forgiveness of sins God holds out to us in Jesus Christ, even to justified sinners. When sin becomes a defining characteristic of our life, it diminishes our sense of communion to God. We don't want to be in the presence of a holy God because that light is shining on our darkness and exposing it. So our sin that pollutes us, our sin that prevents us from entering God's presence, he tells us here, that sin, your individual, unique, particular sin, is covered by the blood of Christ. Verse 9, 
if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to what? To His promises to forgive those who come to Him in repentance. To restore and to forgive and to give joy to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as the one who has died for their sin and been raised for their justification. He's faithful and just. He's just because He's dealt with your sin. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't sweep it under the stove. He deals with it in His Son. And so you see, when sin is by the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ working and applying that Word to you and making it sing to you, that leads to discovered sin. And when sin is discovered and sin is acknowledged, it, sin is confessed. And when sin is confessed, sin is forgiven. Now John is saying that if you confess your sin, if you acknowledge you're a sinner, you've confessed your particular sins to God particularly, you will be purified and cleansed. Your justification is never in doubt, cannot be diminished, cannot be taken from you. But the joy of living in the fellowship of the holy God of light only increases as you confess your sin, as you lay hold of that forgiveness. And as you're being restored and becoming more and more like Christ. All this because God is faithful and just. So that when we confess our sins, we are cleansed of them. And we will discover new ones. And we will want to go back to God again to confess those and to receive forgiveness. It's why we do what we do every Sunday when you walk in this room. But it's what I encourage you to do from day to day on your own. I've told some of you before, and most of you, many of you probably know, that in my previous life, I, was, I worked in the legal profession. And I got to see the gospel, or something like the gospel, presented or manifest in a way I'd not seen before, by a man who was not a Christian, my boss. Sandra walked into our office, and she was a single mother, all distraught, too poor to pay for our services. But her son Stephen, in tow, 12 years old, had been busted for stealing a bike. Stephen stole the bike because he wanted the bike. He wanted the bike because he didn't have a bike. He didn't have a bike because his mom was too poor to buy him a bike. My boss, again, not a Christian, had some understanding at least. I know he had understanding of this, and this is how it played out. A combination of law and gospel. I am in the room... Sandra and Stephen are in the room. He gets up and closes the door to his office. It's padded and therefore soundproof. And he proceeds in a rather loud voice, but in a very compelling lecture, to say to Stephen, you're going to throw your life away over a bike. And he chews him out for quite a long time, putting the absolute fear of the law into this boy. Mother's still cowering in the corner, thinking her boy's going to go to the electric chair <laughs> for a bike. 
When that was over, we all got in the car, because the hearing was that morning. Got in the car, went, drove over to the courthouse. And my boss stood with young Stephen and had him plead guilty. The bike had been recovered, it had been restored to its rightful owner, and Stephen, who was quivering the whole time, had on him pronounced the judgment of a finding of guilt and a penalty of a $100 fine. We walked out of the courtroom, and my boss walked over to the cashier's window, pulled open his wallet, and pulled out $300. $100 he gave to the cashier and said, this is for Stephen. He was just found guilty. He's got a $100 fine. That should cover it. The other $200 he gave to Sandra, and he said, buy your kid a bike. And he turned to Stephen and said, don't do that again. This man is not a Christian, but moved by compassion for a mother who could not afford it, for a, a son who was guilty. After laying down the law, he gives us demonstration of the gospel. You're guilty, I'm paying your fine, and I'm buying you a new bike. I don't think I ever saw Sandra or Stephen again. But I'd like to imagine Stephen never forgot that day. Standing in front of a judge thinking you might go to the electric chair, having your mom think that for you when you're 12 years old for stealing a bike has a way of leaving a lasting impression. And walking out of there not only free, but with money to buy a new bike. You'd like to think, I'd like to think, Stephen went on and lived a life of joy, a life of great relief and restoration. Never saw him again. What kind of lives are you leading, knowing that you have been guilty, have been declared righteous, have your penalty paid, and having been restored to a position better than you ever were? John continues in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer, a someone speaking for us with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Will you live your life repudiating sin, putting it to death, but also running to God in Jesus Christ in faithful repentance to enjoy the forgiveness and the fellowship he holds out to us, fellowship with God? and fellowship with his son. Will you be good repenters? Repenters who run to Christ, who receive forgiveness, and who enjoy fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again that you give us these great pictures of the gospel. Would you make us quick and ready, full repenters, and then would you restore us and renew in us each day a kind of forgiveness that you really do hold out, offer to us and pour into our lives, assuring us of your love, giving us peace, filling us with joy, making us more like Jesus. We ask of this, uh, this of you today, in Jesus' name, and all God's people say together, amen.